كلا إنها كلمة هو قائلها ومن ورائهم برزخ إلى يوم يبعثون إذا نفخ في الصور فلا أنساب بينهم بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ونورهما بعد In our last lecture uh, I had gone over the hadith of Who is the narrator? Quiz Which hadith did I go over the whole lecture? MashaAllah at least one person saved the audience Hadith of Al-Bara' ibn Azib Why is this hadith so important? What did our scholars remark about this hadith of Bara' ibn Azib? Why did I spend a whole lecture on one hadith? It is the primary hadith we have about the Barzakh, right? Ibn Qayyim, others, they mention this hadith is the foundational hadith about the Barzakh. Foundational, not the only. It's not the only hadith, but it is the foundational. It is the main hadith that we have about the Barzakh. Now, because I had to go over the whole hadith, obviously we skimmed over everything to the end. We're not going to go back and break our way down. That was the point of the hadith is to introduce you. We're gonna, now going to go back and talk about uh, basically from the beginning, from the soul leaving the body. We talked about that and inshallah what happens. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Already mentioned about the soul, the reality of the uh, soul. And we're going to now get to the phrase. The hadith says, so the voice comes, return the soul to the body because I created it from the earth and I shall return it to the earth, and from the earth it shall come back again. Now, this phrase, the ruh goes back to the jasad, is explicit. The phrase, the ruh returns to the jasad, is explicit. Therefore, it appears that right after the death, when the ruh is taken, it does not go straight into the body. What it does, it goes up, as we mentioned. From death, it goes up. And then it comes back down. If it is a righteous soul, how high does it get? All the seven heavens. If it is not a righteous soul, the doors are shut. In both cases, the ruh leaves the body and goes upwards and then comes back down to the place of burial. Okay? Now, our scholars mentioned by unanimous consensus that in case the body is not there, it is decomposed, it is drowned, it is torn up or whatnot, all of this is irrelevant. It still comes back down to some place, somewhere where some remnants of the body are. The body does not have to be intact because that is a different alam, a different world altogether. Now, interestingly enough, the great scholar of Andalus, Ibn Hazm, he denied this hadith to be authentic. He said, this hadith is not authentic. And he says, the ruh does not come back to the jasad. Why? Why did he say this? One of the reasons he said is the following. This is interesting. He said, the Quran mentions two lives and two deaths. This is very clear in the Quran. And the Quran mentions, كُنْتُمْ أَمْوَاتًا فَأَحْيَاكُمْ ثُمَّ يُمِيتُكُمْ Right? Two, two deaths and two lives. And it is understood the first death is before we came to this earth. The first life, right now we are here. Then there shall be the second death. Then there shall be the second life, which is Qiyamah. Correct? Now, Ibn Qayyim, sorry, not Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Hazm says, Ibn Hazm says, if the ruh goes back to the jasad, 
This is a second life right there. Then there would have been a third, a second death. Then there'd be a third life and a third death. Do you understand what he's saying? If the ruh were to return to the jasad, this is another life. And the Quran mentions two lives and two deaths. So this hadith, he said, cannot be authentic. The response is, Ibn al-Qayyim remarks, Ibn al-Qayyim kind of corrects Ibn Hazm's misunderstanding. Ibn al-Qayyim says, the ruh coming back to the jasad does not mean that it is becoming alive again. It is a relationship that has nothing to do with the life of this world. There is some attachment of the corpse to the ruh. But that attachment has nothing to do with the attachment of this dunya or the attachment of the akhirah. So it will be considered to be death and not life even if the ruh returns to the place of the corpse. Is that clear? So this is the correct position very clearly. Now, today inshallah ta'ala we'll talk a little bit more detail about uh, the, 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 the issue of death itself and in particular the issue of the sakaratul maut. Uh, the sakaratul maut. And the Quran mentions this issue and the hadith mentions this issue and human experience confirms this issue. That's why in English we have the pangs of death. And every society knows there's something called the last rites of death, what happens at the very end of life and the very beginning of death. And the Quran mentions two phrases, the hadith mentions two phrases, sakarat and ghamarat. As for sakarat, sukr is the opposite of being alert and awake. Sukr is the opposite of being alert and awake and being energetic. It's the opposite of that. And that's why the word for drunken person in Arabic, drunk, is from the same root as sukr, sukran. The one who's drunk in Arabic, he's called sukran. Why? Because when you're drunk, you don't have alertness. You don't have energy, right? You are not thinking properly. So the same root it gives you any, what does sukr mean? So sakarat here means that you are not in a state of full consciousness, but you're not fully unconscious either. This is what sakarat means. That's why it's called sakarat. Sakarat means you are going through a phase where you are not fully conscious and you're not fully unconscious. You're kind of in the middle. And that's why it is called sakarat. And another word that is used in the Quran is ghamarat. And this is Surah Al-An'am, verse 93. And if you could only see when the zalimun are in the ghamaratul maut, and the angels have raised forth their hands to take them, and the angels shout to them or say to them, Get out of the bodies. So the Quran mentions a number of things. The Hadith of Barat talks about the angels, the angels of punishment, the angels threatening, the angels ready to punish right then and there. And the Quran also mentions ghamaratul maut. What does ghamarat mean? And what's the difference between sakarat? So ghamra means to cover up. Ghamra means to cover up. And so ghamarat Similar to sakarat, their intellect is covered up. And some have said ghamarat are stronger than sakarat. Ghamarat are harsher than sakarat. Some have said this, and some have said they're essentially synonymous, sakarat and uh, ghamarat. Ibn Abbas said ghamarat al-maut is the sakarat al-maut. So he equated it together. And others have said ghamarat is a more severe case of sakarat. And perhaps you can perhaps read in that the Quran mentions 
for the evil people. And if you could only see the wicked people in Ghamarat. So if somebody were to say, if there's a possibility that Ghamarat are harsher and therefore the Zalimun. Maybe. But then others can say they are synonymous and Allah Azza wa knows best. The Quran as well mentions this issue of consciousness and unconsciousness towards the end of life as a given fact. The Quran references it as something that is well known. And this is in multiple verses in the Quran. Of them is Surah Ahzab verse 18 and 19. Where Allah says regarding the hypocrites, regarding the, the munafiqun, أَشِحَّةً عَلَيْكُمْ فَإِذَا جَاءَ الْخَوْفُ رَأَيْتَهُمْ يَنظُرُونَ إِلَيْكَ تَدُورُ أَعْيُنُهُمْ كَالَّذِي يُغْشَى عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ فَأَوْلَى لَهُمْ So the hypocrites, Allah says, they are being stingy towards you. And when fear approaches them, when they see the army, when they see death coming, you see them staring at you. Their eyes are going round and round. Their eyes are becoming wide. Like someone, like someone, يُغْشَى عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ He is at the end of life, fainting on and off from death. So Allah is describing the hypocrites as being like the one who is about to die when they see the army coming. So remember Surah Al-Hazab, when the army was coming, the hypocrites panicked, right? That was the whole point. And Allah is saying, rather than be strong, rather than have iman, when they heard the news of the army, they were about to faint, they were about to fall down. Their eyes were wide panicking, like the one who's about to die. So, those who are about to pass away, they're going through states of consciousness and unconsciousness. Their eyes are wide, their eyes are closed. This is what Allah is saying, That is excused. O munafiqun, what excuse do you have? The one who's about to die, that's understood, he's about to die. How about you, O munafiqun? How come you're acting like that person? Because you have no iman. So once again, Allah is not even, He's just comparing the munafiqun. It's a given. It's a known. Everybody knows when you're about to die, this happens. So Allah uses that as an example for the hypocrites, how they are acting. Another verse where this is taken as a given, Surah Muhammad, verse 20. وَيَقُولُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَوْ لَا نُزِّلَتْ سُورَةً فَإِذَا أُنزِلَتْ سُورَةً مُحْكَمَةٌ وَذُكِرَ فِيهَا الْقِتَالِ رَأَيْتَ الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ يَنْظُرُونَ إِلَيْكَ النَّظَرَ الْمَغْشِيِّ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ فَأَوْلَى لَهُمْ When a surah is revealed, that is explicit, and it mentions qital, those people whose hearts have a disease, the munafiqun, they stare at you, like the one who stares, who is at the end of life, who is about to pass away and, you know, he is fainting and waking up from death pangs, right? So the one who is about to leave this world, they have the look of panic. They are looking at you, wide eyes. They have a premonition. They understand what is going on, but they cannot fully explain to you. So the eyes communicate and the eyes are telling you and you can see the panic. That's excusable. We will all have it at some point in our lives. But the munafiqun are having it right now when they hear the Qur'an. You see the criticism. The criticism is not to the one about to pass away. That's understood. The criticism is to the hypocrites. Their fear of being exposed. Their fear of having to fight for the way of Allah. Their fear of having to be good Muslims is so much. In two verses, Allah compares their fear of, of life 
as if they're about to die because they cannot implement the commandments of Allah. The point being, in both of these verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this issue of the end of life, this issue of the panic at the end of life, this issue of the eyes staring and consciousness and unconsciousness fleeting in and out. It is something that is a given in the Quran. And in fact, the fact of the matter is, this is not even a religious issue. Muslim, non-Muslim, kafir, atheist, everybody knows that when the end of time comes, you know, then a process begins where the doctors basically say, okay, well, it has begun. They all know that is the end of life and it is now uh, that the pangs have, have begun. And of course, everybody faces the sakaratul maut. Everyone faces the sakaratul maut, including the most blessed creations of Allah, and those are the prophets and the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Aisha radiallahu anha said that indeed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the last days of uh, his life, he was in my room and he was on my chest, and I would have water next to him and he would take water in the bucket and he would wipe it with the cloth that he had he would wipe his head it was hot meaning he felt hot he felt uh, feverish and whatnot and he would wipe from his head and he would say la ilaha illallah ala inna lil mawti sakarat la ilaha illallah ala inna lil mawti sakarat and Aisha says he continued to say this until he went silent for a while, and then I heard him say, a'la, And that was the last thing that he said, and he passed away. His head was on my chest, Aisha said. So, the last phrases that he said before, al-a'la, What does Rafiq al-a'la mean? Up in the highest heavens, right? So, he is seeing the angel, and the angel is saying, where would you like to go? And the process of saying, I don't want to stay here anymore. I want to go up. That's the last thing he said. And we're going to come to this issue of the prophets being asked permission. But the point is, before he got to that phrase, by a few minutes, by a few, maybe even a few days, he was saying this. What was he saying? He is saying this to us. He knows, but he wants us to know. He's teaching us at the very last minutes of his life. He wants us to benefit. He wants us to learn. What is he teaching us? Allah means pay attention. Allah means verily. Allah means listen to what I'm saying. It's a harfu tanbih. It means I'm telling you something. Listen to me. That's what Allah means. Allah indeed know verily. Death has sakarat. Death has sakarat. Why is he repeating this? Because the message has to be given to prepare for it. Imam al-Ghazali comments in his famous treatise on death. Imam al-Ghazali says that even if we were to presume that there is no punishment or terror or examination for the soul other than the sakarat, if the only thing that we had was the sakarat, it would be enough of a reason for us to spend our whole life preparing just for the sakarat. Of course, it's more than the sakarat. But Al-Ghazali is saying, even if there's nothing other than the sakarat, and it's just the sakarat, then the sakarat is enough for us to spend a lifetime preparing for it. And the sakarat is enough for us to dampen any pleasure of this world. And it is enough for us for to reflect and to ponder and to prepare long and hard for that day when the sakarat begins. And then Ghazali concludes by saying, and no one knows the reality of the sakarat except those that have faced it. So, 
The Prophet ﷺ informed us, Ala inna lil mawti sakarat. Anas ibn Malik narrates that. Uh, and so the first hadith from Aisha, and Aisha is narrating the eyewitness. Anas ibn Malik narrates that when uh, the Prophet ﷺ was unable to walk and he was on his basically last, and he was on his lying down, uh, he began to flutter in and out of consciousness. So this is sakarat, that's what sakarat means, right? He's conscious and unconscious, conscious and unconscious. That's a sakarat right there. And Fatima was next to him. So Anas was the khadim. Remember, he's you know, a young child, he's a kid. He's in the room at the time because he's not baligh at this stage. He's in the room and he is in the back. He is the khadim of the Prophet ﷺ. Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet is, is here. So Anas is narrating to us Fatima. Aisha narrated what she said and did. And Fatima is in a different scenario, probably a few hours before this, and Anas is in the room. So Anas is saying that Fatima was in the room next to the bed of the Prophet wasallam, And she was saying, Wa kurba aba, wa kurba aba. This is very advanced in Arabic, it's balagha. Wa kurba aba, there is no translation. It basically means, woe to the pains of my father. There's no English equivalent. It's just like, what can I do, dear father? You're in pain. That's what it is. What can I do? I wish I could do something. What can I do? You are in pain. So this is a mechanism. Modern Arabs no longer use this wa something. Ah, it's gone. It's called. It's another way of doing it. It's completely gone uh, from, from vernacular. But in classical Arabic, it indicated distress. It indicated grief and sorrow. I am hurt, my dear father, because of your pains. Your pains, my dear father, are causing me distress and grief. That's what she's saying. Wa kurba aba. And the Prophet was unconscious. He woke up and he heard Fatima say this. And he said, Ya Fatima, Laysa ala abiki kurbun ba'd al yawm. Oh Fatima, after today there are no pains for your father. This is it. This is it. This is the final bit. Oh Fatima, after today, that's it. So for the righteous, the sakarat are the end of any pain. That's it. Subhanallah. There's the good news amongst the bad news. The bad news is we're all going to face sakarat. But the good news for the righteous person, the sakarat are the final, final, final pain that that person will ever feel for all of eternity. Because after that, khalas is gone. So the Prophet says to Fatima, Ya Fatima, Laysa ala abiki kurbun ba'd al yawm. Oh Fatima, don't feel sad. Oh Fatima, you don't have to cry. Oh Fatima, don't worry. After today, there is no more pain. So he is telling us the sakarat or the final uh, pain. Then the Prophet passed away and Fatima visited uh, yani the, 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 the body that was there. And Anas said, Fatima began to say, Ya abatah, ajaba rabban da'ah, Ya abatah, min jannatil firdawsi ma'wah, Ya abatah, ila jibrilin nan'ah. And again, these are all very classical mechanisms in the Arabic language to indicate distress. This is not wailing. This is not wailing. This is indicating distress. A big difference. You can be sad. You can cry. You can just. We just heard. You know, our Sheikh say the Prophet lost his son Ibrahim. What did he say? Our heart is grieved. Our eyes are crying. This is permissible. Wailing is to raise your voice with shrill noises and to yell and scream and say phrases that are phrases of kufr. How can we live again? We will not be able to survive. Oh, who will take care of us? 
The one who took care of you when your father was alive will take care of you when your father is dead. The one who took care of you when your husband is alive will take care of you when your husband is dead. That's Allah, not the human being in front of you. That is wailing. And that is haram in our sharia. This is not wailing. She is simply expressing her grief and it translates as, Ya abata, my dear father. In Jannatul Firdaus is his place. My dear father, we give news of your death to none other than Jibreel. Jibreel is the one we will inform of your death. My dear uh, father, uh, my, my dear father, you have responded to the call of your Lord. Uh, your Lord has called you and you have responded to him. And so Anas then said, and we buried the Prophet when I returned back to the house. And of course, yani Fatima is hurt fatima is grieving right and she says a statement that is very 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 stark she says to anas oh anas were you able to live with yourselves after throwing dust on the body of the prophet did you find it okay yani she's hurt obviously not what else is to be done I mean, she's just saying, Atabat nafusukum. Yani, were your souls in calmness? Who did you just bury? Do you understand? Whose soul did you, whose body did you put? Did you put sand over? Do you understand? Ya Anas, your souls are at peace that you have now thrown dust on the body of the Prophet. She's hurt, she's grieving, and it's understandable that she says something very sharp, which is true in its own way. But you have to do what you have to do. And that's what the Sahaba did. Now, the issue of Sakratul Maut is of course understood. There is a hadith in Sunan At-Tirmidhi. In Sunan At-Tirmidhi, uh, Tirmidhi reports from the famous uh, Shaykh, uh, his teacher Qutayba from Layth, from Ibn Al-Had, from Musa ibn Sarjis, from Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, from his aunt Aisha, Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. So this is the grandson of Abu Bakr. And one of the main narrators from Aisha is Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. Because who would visit Aisha other than Maharim? So very few people directly narrated from Aisha, meaning one-on-one, -on -one, very few people. Everybody else narrated from Aisha behind the curtain. Of the people who could narrate directly from Aisha, Urwa ibn Zubair, that is one nephew, and Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad is another nephew. And Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, this is her actual nephew, because Muhammad is the son of Abu Bakr. So this is Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, narrates from Aisha, that Aisha said, that I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam while he was passing away, while he was dying, while he is passing away, and he would put the water on his forehead, then he would say, Allahumma a'inni ala sakaratil maut. Now, this hadith is in Tirmidhi, and it is different than the first one. The first one is in Bukhari and Muslim. When Aisha is saying, he would wipe it away and he would say, Ala inna lil mawti sakarat. This one is a, what is it? Allahumma a'inni. It's a dua. It's a dua. Now, there's only one issue. We said Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad narrates from his aunt Aisha. The one who narrated from him, Muhammad ibn Sarjis. This person is completely unknown. We don't know anything about him. This is the only hadith he ever narrated. So he's called, what in the technical term is called, Mastur. Nobody knows anything about him. And this hadith is reported in Tirmidhi and Imam Ahmad's Musnad and Ibn Hibban and Nisai's Amal Yom other books as well but all of them go through the same chain of Muhammad ibn Sarjah from Al-Qasim Muhammad from Aisha all of them go through this person whom we don't know anything about therefore from a technical perspective this hadith clearly is weak because when you have an unknown narrator the hadith is weak and that's what Tirmidhi himself says هَذَا حَدِيثٌ غَرِيبٌ and when he says غَرِيبٌ he means uh, weak however however 
I gave a lecture a few days ago in this masjid about the concept of da'if hadith and it is permissible to use da'if hadith when it is generalities and this is a generality should we make dua when we're in pain yes or no yes so there's nothing wrong with taking this hadith even if it is slightly weak and applying it so we should memorize this dua and whenever our turn comes may Allah allow us to say it and if we are in the presence of other people who are about to pass away we can tell them say this dua what is the dua guys Allahumma a'inni ala sakaratil maut oh Allah help me overcome the sakaratil maut help me a'inni right A'inni, help me. It's gonna happen. All of us are facing sakarat. But oh Allah, with your help, it can be made easier. Right? So, we ask Allah to make the sakarat easier. This is an explicit dua with a slight weakness, but no big deal as we said. Weak duas can be used, especially in this uh, regard. Now, um, another interesting point, uh, another interesting narration, uh, which is in the, the famous book, Tabaqat uh, ibn Sa'ad, uh, these are books, by the way, I'm introducing them to you. You should all be aware of these books as a part of our culture and heritage. Uh, one of the most classical books ever written in our tradition uh, is called Tabaqat of Ibn Sa'd. Ibn Sa'd died 240 Hijrah, very early on, before Imam al-Bukhari, by almost a generation. And Ibn Sa'd wrote Tabaqat. It is the first, Tabaqat means the levels. The Sahaba, Tabi'un, Taba Tabi'un. So it is a book of history of famous people written 200 years after the Prophet. So one of the earliest books ever written. So it's a very classical book, Tabaqat ibn Sa'd. And in this, he has the biographies of the Sahaba and Tabi'un and famous ulama of the early times. And he has in the biography of Amr ibn al As a very interesting narration that is relevant to our talk. Amr ibn al As, who is Amr ibn al As? Does everybody know Amr ibn al As? Amr ibn al As is the father of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As. And who is Amr ibn As? First governor of Egypt, okay. The conqueror of Egypt. Our Egyptian brother knows who Amr is. Half of Egypt is called Amr. MashaAllah, tabarakallah, because of Amr ibn As. And the most famous masjid is the masjid of Amr ibn As. So Amr ibn As was the one who led uh, the campaign in Egypt. And he was, of course, eventually the right hand of Muawiyah as well. Now, Amr ibn As very famous Sahabi, the last of the Sahaba to uh, get the honor of Hijrah. Right? He was the last three who entered was Amr ibn al-As was amongst them. Now, Amr ibn al-As has a very interesting career because he is one of the politicians of the Sahaba and I mean, I mean that in a positive manner. Uh, and this is something that the, even Umar ibn Khattab and others remarked that this is a man who was born for politics, siyasa. He knows and by politics means he knows how to control and govern. And Muawiyah radiallahu anh, used him uh, fully uh, to be uh, his, his potential. Amr ibn As was about to pass away. He's on his deathbed. And his son, who is his son? Abdullah. And the two of them are as different as the night from the day. Abdullah, and if you know who he is, and Amr, and if you know who he is. And I mean this in a positive manner. I have to always be careful because some people just waiting for that 10 second clip and, and read something in, as you know. Uh, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As radiallahu an was a Zahid Abid, yani just ascetic, cut off from the world. He just wants to worship, has nothing to do with siyasa, money, nothing. And Amr ibn al As was very involved in the affairs of this dunya. Let's just put it that way, in a very positive manner. Jayid, the two are very different. Abdullah visits Amr on his deathbed. Listen to this. 
Abdullah says, Ya Abati, my dear father, don't you remember? You used to say to me, I always wonder at the one who is about to die and he's still conscious, why doesn't he describe it to those around him? So, dear father, can you describe death to us? You guys follow what's happening? Abdullah says to his father, Oh father, I remember you telling me once upon a time, you used to say this to us, that why don't the people who are about to die tell us what they're feeling? If they're able to, yani if they have aql. And my dear father, you have right now consciousness, and it's at that time, so why don't you tell us? Isn't this an interesting narration? Right? So, Amr ibn al-As responds. And he says, Ya Bunay, Al-Mawtu ajallu min an yusaf. My dear son, death is too big of a deal to be able to describe to you now. I can't describe it. So he is now Sakaratul Maut. He is in the last phases of this dunya. And he knows it. And he's conscious. And his son is saying, tell me. And the father says, it's ajal. And ajal means it's much larger, much more bigger than what I can describe to you. Walakin, but let me describe a little bit of how I'm feeling. I find myself as if my chest is under the mountain of Radwa. The mountain of Radwa is a large range of mountains between Medina and Yambur. It's one of the largest range of mountains, bigger than Uhud. So he says, I feel that my chest, the mountain of Radwa is on top of it. And I feel that in my throats, there are shok, there are pins putting, pushing outside. So from external there's pressure, from internal there's pressure. And I feel that my soul is being told to go through the eye of a needle. This is how all of it is coming together. Externally, I feel the pressure. Internally, I feel a sense. And I, the, the, what, the sense I have, the, the impossibility of the task ahead of me, my soul has to go through the, the eye of the needle. So this is one of the last things that Amr ibn al said before he passed away, describing how he feels during this time. Now, the question arises, does all, do all souls feel the Sakaratul Maut or are there some exceptions? The response, Allah only knows, but it does appear that the default amongst mankind is that there shall be Sakarat. And we know this from a number of things. First and foremost, the generality of the Quran and the Sunnah. The Ghamaratul Maut, the Sakaratul Maut that occurs, these phrases occur, they're always linked together. Sakaratul Maut occurs together. So it is as if Maut always has Sakara. And our Prophet said, Ala inna lil mawti Sakarat. Verily, along with Maut, there are Sakarat. So the generality of the Quran and Sunnah indicates that everybody, Muslim and Kafir, righteous and Unrighteous, the muttaqi and the fajr, all of them have sakarat. This is the first evidence. The second evidence, very few exceptions explicitly exist that this person does not have sakarat. 
The fact that the Prophet would say this person does not have sakra indicates the rest will. So from this we can derive that even if we do not see the sakarat, for example, a person passes away in sleep and we did not see the sakarat, or a person passes away instantaneously. Yeah, an accident happens, you know, whatever, from our perspective, millisecond. From our perspective, you know, the ship drowned and the person, whatever, falling off or an accident. So from the human perspective, we think one millisecond. But we will say, in the alamul barzakh, the pangs are going to occur in their time frame, not in our time frame. Regardless of whether we can sense it or not, the default appears to be every soul will have sakarat. And as already explained, the time frame of the soul is not our clock time frame. This is a different time frame and they will have to bear their uh, sakarat. Imam al-Qurtubi says, Imam al-Qurtubi says in his famous book uh, on the barzakh and the ahwal al-mawt and the akhir, he has a three-volume book. And some of this material is also from there. And uh, as you know, if you're not aware, my, I always take my sources from the original. I go back to the, uh, the original sources. I don't only have just one book. There's always whatever I give a talk on. Inshallah, you will always hear various sources. Imam al-Qurtubi said that if the anbiya and the salihun undergo sakarat, then how can anybody assume we will be safe from it? If the anbiya and the righteous will be undergoing sakarat, no one should live under the false assumption that they will not be undergoing the sakarat. Then Qurtubi says, now if somebody were to say, what is the wisdom behind the sakarat for the righteous? What is the wisdom behind the sakarat for the Prophet and the righteous? Qurtubi says, we respond with two things. Number one, so that the rest of the creation can see the reality of death even through those whom Allah loves. And this is a very terrifying phrase. Even those whom Allah loves, Allah wants to show us death is not easy. There will be sakarat. And so no one should assume, Qurtubi says, that if somebody dies quietly, that death is easy. This is basically what I'm saying. What I said before I quoted Qurtubi, I said the same thing. And that is that just because we think the guy died quietly, we shouldn't assume that it was an easy death in the alamul barzakh. Death is always an awkward process even for the righteous. There are sakarat even for the righteous. The second reason, he said, is that we have to understand these pains in light of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that those who are tested the most in this world are the prophets and then closest to them. Meaning, this is an authentic hadith we all know, meaning any pain or suffering or irritation or nuisance for the righteous is only meant to increase his maqam in the eyes of Allah before the akhirah comes. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to max out our hasanat. He wants to give us the highest place. And He does so with, as the Prophet said, even a pin that will afflict you. Allah will raise your ranks one daraja. So if Allah wants to raise somebody higher and higher and higher, there will be nuisances. There will be pain. There will be suffering. And the goal will be to raise that person up higher and higher. So this is something that is very uh, clear that even the righteous are going to face sakarat. Now, does every single person face the sakarat? It appears that perhaps 
the shaheed does not face the sakarat. Nothing explicit, explicit, but it, we can derive it. The hadith mentions, hadith is in Tirmidhi, the shaheed only feels his death to the same extent as one of you feels the bite of an ant. Which means the shaheed does not feel sakarat. So it does seem that perhaps there are some exceptions to the sakarat, and if there is, then it is going to be the uh, the shaheed is explicitly mentioned. So this is the issue of the sakaratul maut. Uh, the hadith of Ra already mentions the, the, the ruh going up and coming back down. And then we mentioned that the ruh goes back to the place where the body is. Then we get to the next issue, which is the issue of the fitna of the qabr. And I'll start today and then I'll continue the fitna next because there's more to be said than in just one day. I'll just mention few points about the fitna of the qabr and then we'll continue this next week inshallah ta'ala. We have to differentiate. A lot of Muslims get confused between fitna to qabr and adab al-qabr. And they consider them to be the same thing. And this is a, a big mistake because the two are totally separate, completely separate. The fitna is something that Everybody is going to undergo the Muslim and the Kafir, except for a small group of exceptions as we're going to talk about. The Adab is something that the righteous will not have. They will have the Naim al Qabr. The Fitna is the precursor to the Naim or the Adab. The Fitna is the first step when the Ruh comes back in. That is the Fitna. And after the Fitna will either be the blessing or the punishment, the Naim or the Adab. So Naim al-Qabr versus Adab al-Qabr. This is after. Before that is the fitna. We can say the fitna is the examination. That's what fitna means. The fitna is the examination. And the default, everybody will undergo that examination. In the hadith in Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, this hadith is mutafaq alayh. Anas ibn Malik said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam told us when the servant is put in his qabr, so once again, the ruh is going back to the qabr. The fitna takes place in the qabr. Where the qabr is physically, that is where the fitna is. Now, as we said, as scholars all mention, in case there is no physical qabr that you know of, there is a qabr somewhere in the world that Allah is aware of. So even if there is no body, if the body incinerates, if the body something happens, somewhere there is going to be some relationship of the ashes or the drowned body or the corpse or something. And wherever that is, the ruh will be over there. Okay, so the ruh will be attached to the remnants of the body when the fitna takes place. The fitna will take place in this world at the qabr. The hadith is explicit. When the servant is put in his qabr and his, <clears throat> his family and friends turn away and leave and indeed he shall hear their footsteps as they walk away, two angels will come to him and sit him up. And they will ask him, and now you know the three questions we went over it last time. The Hadith of also mentions it. What do you say about, you know, this man? It says, so you, you know all of these things. As for the believer, he will say, I testify he is Abdullah wa Rasuluh. And as for the uh, Munafiq, then he will say, ah, ah, la adri. And he will be hit with something that everyone will hear other than the makhluqat. Okay, this Hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim narrated by Anas. Does it mention the names of the angels? No. It says two angels. Yet the names of the angels we all know. Where do we get them from? It is not in Bukhari and Muslim. It is in Sunan At-Tirmidhi and 
the chain is of contested quality. So some of our more strict muhaddithin say that the hadith is not authentic. And the majority of scholars, including Imam Tirmidhi, say the hadith is authentic. And inshallah, in my humble opinion, it is authentic. And this is now different from the, from the issue of um, the dua. Because when it comes to theology, we need a sahih hadith. We cannot derive theology from a weak hadith. Okay, so if the hadith that mentions the names of the angels were weak, we should clarify that the names of the angels are not known to us. But if the hadith is authentic, and inshallah it is authentic, then we can say, yes, the names of the angels are known to us. And the names of the angels occur in a hadith in Tirmidhi reported by Abu Huraira, not the hadith of Anas ibn Malik. And Abu Huraira says that I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say when the, when the mayyit is put in the qabr so once again it is in the qabr two angels come who are bluish and darkish bluish and darkish that's atypical it's a terrifying sight bluish and darkish one of them is called what is he called? Munkar and the other is called Nakir aha where do we get the names from? Hadith is in Tirmidhi. Narrated from Abu Hurair. And they will say, and then the questions come, and then the righteous will say, Oh Allah, cause the day of judgment to come quickly because he sees his place as Jannah. And the unrighteous will say, Oh Allah, delay the uh, judgment day. So the issue of Munkar and Nakir is something that is explicit in the hadith of Tirmidhi. Now, will ev- so what is the fitnatul qabr? The fitnatul qabr is the three questions. The fitnatul qabr is munkar and nakir coming and questioning you. That is the fitna. And the righteous will pass the fitna, but they still undergo the fitna. Correct? You see the point, right? So don't get confused between fitnatul qabr and between adhabul qabr. Adhabul qabr is the punishment that will happen to the unrighteous afterwards. And the fitna is the examination before that. Now, will everybody undergo the fitna? No. Allah will save categories of people. Let's quickly mention these categories and then we'll ask Q&A and then we're done for today. Number one. Number one. Who do you think will be number one explicitly mentioned in the hadith? Shaheed. Shaheed. This is explicitly mentioned in the hadith. A person asked the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, why is it that the shaheed does not have to have the fitnatul qabr? This is an explicit question. Ya Rasulullah, why is it that the shaheed doesn't have fitnatul qabr? This means that the notion of the shaheed being saved from fitna al-qabr was known to all of the sahaba. That's why you have a sahabi coming up saying, Ya Rasulullah, how come the shaheed doesn't have the fitna al-qabr? You see the question. They already know it. Now he wants to know why. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Kafa nisai It is enough, the shining blade of light striking his, his neck, that is enough of a fitna that he doesn't have to pass the munkar and nakir. The fact that the shaheed did what he did, it is enough of a fitna. He has passed the test. There is no need to pass the test. And, you know, the, there are a number of, you know, like if you're in the, some classes, the professor knows you so well. He'll say, look, you're the, such a student, you don't even need to take the exam. You don't even take the exam. I just know it. You, are, you know more than anyone else by a stretch, what not. This is essentially the same thing. The Prophet is saying, it is enough 
of a fitna for the shaheed that the sharpness and the whiteness of the sword strikes his neck. Why does he have to undergo munkar and nakir? He's already tested and proved himself there. This hadith is in Sunan An-Nisa'i. Sunan At-Tirmidhi. Tirmidhi has a chapter called The Blessings of the Shaheed. It has many beautiful hadith in it. And one of them, the Shaheed has six blessings with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number one, he is forgiven with the first batch of those who are forgiven. Number two, he will continually see his place in Jannah. Number three, he will be protected from the fitnatul qabr. Number four, he will be protected from the faza'ul akbar or the big terror. What is the big terror? We'll talk about that inshallah in this series on the barzakh. And number five, that he will get a taj, uh, a crown from yaqut that will be put on his head. And number six, he will get yani, 72 of the hur and uh, an added blessing. He will be able to intercede for 70 of his uh, close relatives. So one of the blessings of the shaheed is what? He shall not have fitnatul qabr. So there is no fitna and there is not even obviously an adab for the shaheed. And there are other evidences as well of them, the hadith in Muslim Imam Ahmad, which insha'Allah, insha'Allah, we can read something positive into. And that is that when the Prophet said shaheed, he doesn't just mean the shaheed of the battle. Insha'Allah, he means the shaheed that is in the broader category. Because our Prophet said, whoever dies by drowning is a shaheed. Whoever dies in a fire is a shaheed. Whoever dies because of the button, and the button here means any disease. Some, some ulama say, some ulama say, the button doesn't just mean stomach, it means any internal disease. And insha'Allah, this is, we read in positive and we think good thoughts. This is a positive. In Islam, you are allowed to have what is called good omens. You're allowed to read in positive things as a part of our sharia. So inshallah, anybody who dies because of an internal disease, because batan actually means what is internal. It doesn't just mean stomach. The batan, huwa zahiru wal batan. So anybody who dies because of cancer, because of anything, inshallah, inshallah, we say this is a type of shahada as well, based on the hadith of the batan. Now, uh, what was I saying? So the hadith here in Muslim Ahmad. So two Sahaba, those names are not known to you, they're of the minor Sahaba, Khalid ibn Urfudah and Suleiman ibn Sur, and they were both of the minor Sahaba. Uh, a person died, and uh, he died because of the button. He died because of the stomach. What does it mean he died because of the button? In the classical times, if somebody had a disease of the stomach, such that there's constant you know, bile coming out or vomiting or like, you know, diarrhea and just the stomach always is giving issues. It was very common uh, in, the, in the old days, especially before they had, you know, modern methods of hygiene and whatnot. They would call this button. Now, I don't know, the doctors here can tell us, I'm sure there's at least 20 different diseases that come under this, right? But the hadith just mentions the button. So, a person died because of button. Two of the sahaba heard of his death. And they said, oh, how I wish we could have prayed janazah over him. Don't you remember what the Prophet ﷺ said? This is the hadith. مَنْ قَتَلَهُ بَطْنُهُ لَمْ يُعَذَّ فِي قَبْرِهِ Whoever dies because of the issues of the button, he shall not be punished in the grave. Now this hadith doesn't mention shaheed, it mentions button. So we hope, insha'Allah, insha'Allah, we're positive that if somebody dies because of an internal issue, that insha'Allah, insha'Allah, he doesn't have to do what? The fitna of the qabr, okay? So number one is fitna, and insha'Allah, not fitna, number one is shaheed, and insha'Allah the shaheed is in the broad shaheed. Number two, who else is saved from 
Munkar and Nakir. Some ulama have read into a hadith, even though it doesn't say fitna, it says adab, but then they say the fitna is a type of adab. And as in Sahih Muslim, that the Prophet said, whoever dies while protecting the borders of Islam shall continually be rewarded until judgment day. And, in th- sorry, this hadith is explicit. Sorry, scrap what I said. This the other section. And he shall be protected from the two fattan. And who are the two fattans? Munkar and Nakir. Who is this category? The one who is protecting. Now, once upon a time, and even in our times in modern nation states when they're at war, you have armies that are protecting the borders. Even in a state of peace, but you're protecting the borders in case of a surprise attack. This is called ribat. That's what the meaning of ribat is, okay? That's what the ribat is. And ribat is a type of legitimate jihad, right? So our Prophet said, whoever dies in ribat, far away from the family, all alone, ribat is not easy. Ribat is very difficult because you are living in the wilderness. You are just doing what nobody really wants to do. You know, you're just protecting the fortress and whatnot. Whoever dies in that state, the Prophet said, he is going to be protected from the two angels that are going to come. So this is number two. Number three, and this is inshallah also good news. Whoever dies on a Friday, hadith is reported in Sunan at Tirmidhi and Muslim Imam Ahmad. Ma min Muslimin yamutu yawm al Jumu'ati illa waqahu Allahu fitnat al Qabr. No Muslim dies on yawm al Jumu'ah except that Allah shall protect him from fitnat al Qabr. So to die on a Friday is insha'Allah a positive sign. Now, does this mean that everybody who dies on other than Friday is a bad sign? No, dear brothers and sisters, no. What day did our Prophet die? Monday. So we don't read in the opposite. Don't, this is not our religion. We only read positive. That's the religion. We read in good news. Other than that, we don't read in opposite. Even our Prophet did not die Friday. No, no, it's not something you read into. But if somebody dies on a Friday, we say, inshallah, it's a good sign. Inshallah, it's a good sign that the fitnatul qabr will be protected from. These are the three main categories of explicit protecting from fitnatul qabr. Final point, and then we are done. I apologize, we went late today because of the, 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 the fundraiser that took place, or the announcements. But this is the final point, inshallah. It is authentically narrated that our Prophet would regularly seek refuge from the fitnatul qabr. So we should seek refuge from the fitnatul qabr. It should be a part of our regular routine to ask Allah to protect us and to be able to pass that exam. And subhanAllah, dear brothers and sisters, and I am guilty of this as well, how sincerely we make dua to Allah because of an exam of this dunya. Well, I was guilty. I no longer have exams for many, many years, alhamdulillah. But we all used to make dua the day before the exam. Oh Allah, let me get an A on this exam. Oh Allah, let me pass this exam. All sincere dua. How about the exam of the qabr? When's the last time we made dua for that? Think about it. When's the last time we made dua for the qabr to pass that exam? Our Prophet would regularly make dua to pass that exam. And these are many, many ahadith, and I'll just mention one or two, and then we'll resume from this next week. Of these ahadith, Aisha narrates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would regularly say, كان يتعوز, regularly dua. 
اللهم إني أعوذ بك من فتنة القبر وعذاب النار وفتنة سوري سوري اللهم إني أعوذ بك من فتنة النار وعذاب النار وفتنة القبر وعذاب القبر okay so فتنة النار and عذاب النار we'll talk about that later on we were talking about this the whole issue is barzakh we're going to get to the after barzakh as well and i seek refuge from fitnatul qabr and from adhabul qabr notice two different things fitnatul qabr and so there's something called fitnatun nar we'll talk about that there is something called fitnatun nar there's something called adhabun nar then there's something called fitnatul qabr and this is munkar and nakir and then there's something called adhabul qabr which is the punishment of the qabr and then uh, he went on and he said, and I seek refuge in you from the evil of the fitna of being rich and the evil of the fitna of being poor. This is very profound, by the way. The Prophet did not want the evils of being filthy rich and the evils of being dirt poor. Both of them are a fitna. He didn't want it. He wanted, believe it or not, middle class. He did not want that type of wealth that it's almost impossible to live righteously. And he did not want that type of dirt poverty where life becomes very difficult. And I seek refuge in you from the Masih al-Dajjal. Oh Allah, forgive my sins with ice and with water. Oh Allah, forgive, cleanse me of my uh, evil deeds like the white thawb is cleansed from any marking. Oh Allah, make between me and my sins like you have made between the east and the west. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from laziness and from a decrepit senile old age and from committing sins and from being in debt. This is a very long hadith. I just quickly went over it. But he began the hadith with what? I seek refuge from fitnatun nar and adabun nar and fitnatul qabr and adabul qabr. That's how the hadith begins. And this hadith is in Musadrak uh, al-Hakim. It's a long hadith. The hadith in Bukhari. The Prophet wasallam would regularly seek refuge from Fitnatun nar and adabun nar and fitnatul qabr and adabul qabr. This is in Bukhari, that bit. The longer one that, O oh Allah, ba'id bayni wa bayna khataya kama ba'ata bayna al-mashriq al-maghrib. O oh Allah, naqqini min al-dhunubi al-khataya. This is dua, dua we say when we die or when, not when we die. When somebody dies, we make the dua. It is found in this hadith in Musadrak of Al-Hakim. So, to conclude in today's lecture, today we talked about the issue of sakarat and ghamarat al-mawt. And we talked about the realities of these things being affirmed from the Quran and Sunnah and even from human experience. Everybody knows this. It's something that is there. And that the Quran takes it as a given. That is something that will take place. We mentioned that even the righteous generally will go through the Sakaratul Maut. Even the Prophet went through the Sakaratul Maut. After the Sakarat, the soul goes up and down. That was last week's lecture. We did that. So I'm skipping over that because that was last week. When the soul comes back, then we have the Fitnatul Qabr. And the Fitnatul Qabr is not universal. There are people that are saved from it. If the Shaheed is saved from it, we can assume the prophets will also be saved from it. We can assume the prophets have no need for the fitna their whole lives. They don't need to be tested by Munkar and Nakir. And we can assume that other people, for example, the ribat issue, it kind of sort of opens a door. Somebody who was ultra pious and his whole life he is doing piety and he dies in that state of piety. Insha'Allah, even though the hadith doesn't mention that. But what is ribat? It is a very good deed and the person who dies while doing it the Prophet is saying he will not have to face fitna. So insha'Allah, we hope, it's not a aqidah, don't misquote me, it's not theology. We hope that somebody who dies in a good state, insha'Allah, in tahajjud sajda, 
And there are people, we see them on YouTube once in a while, you know, in Masjid al Nabi or something, I saw somebody was praying tahajjud, and in the Masjid, you know, in the Kaaba and the Masjid, he just, and in, in, in tahajjud, passes away. And the ruh just leaves and the body slumps over. Insha'Allah, we hope this is shahada. He's done the, the, the uh, insha'Allah, we can hope. Only Allah knows in the end of the day. But this hadith opens a window for us. That, so category one is shaheed. Category two, the ribat. And insha'Allah, anybody who is doing something very, very righteous and they die in that state, we hope the best for them. And then category three was what? Time frame. Somebody who dies, especially on Friday. And insha'Allah, we hope any good time frame, the last 10 days of Ramadan, let's say. Now again, don't misquote me. I'm not propagating theology. I'm simply having good thoughts of Allah, as we should have. That if we know in one time frame is a blessed, then how about if somebody dies in another blessed time frame? We hope from Allah the best. That insha'Allah, it is something good. And we leave it at that. And it is halal, and not just halal, it is good to have good thoughts of Allah and to read in positive. With that, inshallah, we open the floor for some questions. And I do apologize for going late today. I've tried to not go too late, inshallah. Yes, bismillah. Okay, so our brother says that there are some people whom Allah Azza wa mentions they came back from death. Such as the one whom Isa resurrected. And such as, And how do we understand this in light of, And the response is, for every rule there are generally exceptions. So if 99.9999999% of mankind will not come back to this world. And in all of human history, two or three or four did. This is not negating the rule that Allah Azza wa has put. And that rule is that once you leave, you are not going to come back. Number one. Number two, the Quran says that those who are about to die, they beg, قَالَ رَبِّ Kalla, Allah says, never will you come back. Kalla, never. Never will a person come back because they beg to come back. In all of these scenarios, they came back because Allah chose them to come back. Did Lazarus know he was going to come back when he Lazarus the one who Isa resurrected? No. The one So the one who The one whom Allah caused to pass away a hundred years Did he come back because he demanded Allah to come back? No So It is no exception to this rule Because Allah says This is a decree that I have said That no one will come back Just because you want to come back Are there any narrations about them describing death? Not according to the best of my knowledge. No, I don't think so. La adri, and Allah knows best. Sisters, any questions? Oh my God, four, mashallah. Okay, let's begin. Go ahead. Excellent. Our sister uh, points out another verse that, subhanAllah, I was wondering should I add it or not? And then I said, enough 
with these three verses that I quoted, so I left this one out. Uh, but it was on my agenda to put, but I said there's no time to put this. And also because it's not as explicit as the other verses about Sakarat al Maut. And this is the verse. Um, so this verse also describes the last portion of life. And people say, where is the raqi? Where is the doctor who can uh, come and, and cure him? So it doesn't explicitly mention sakarat that much. It does mention one thing. The person knows the time is up. And this is a type of sakarat because sakarat, you know that your time is up. You kind of are aware of it, but you're not aware of it. That's the point. And Allah mentions in this verse, not the actual sakarat, but this semi-consciousness. This is what is mentioned. So that is another verse we can add to the category of sakarat. You had a question, go ahead. Our brother asks, when we visit a qabr, do the people know we are there? And the response is to be continued. You shall have much more evidences than you ever knew existed. And I will give you maybe even an entire lecture about this one issue, inshallah, about the relationship between the dead and the living. And the issue of what can the dead do for the living and what can the living do for the dead. And the relation, all of this to be discussed. You're sitting in the right place, inshallah. <laughs> Sister, go ahead. So our sister says, will we remember the answers to these questions in the grave? Uh, and the response is, and I mentioned this briefly last week as well, the remembrance of that exam is not like the remembrance of the exams of this dunya. When we study for our exams of this dunya, when we study for the MCAT, you're studying for the MCAT? You already took it. When we're studying for organic chemistry or for whatever, you know, thermodynamics 3 or something, that is a knowledge of the brain. It's a knowledge of memorization. It's a knowledge that is superficial. That knowledge is irrelevant in the qabr. In the qabr, it is the knowledge of the amal and not the ilm of the brain. It is the knowledge of what you have done. It is the knowledge of real iman in the heart because this is a very deep topic actually and maybe one day we'll talk about this. Iman necessitates amal. Iman, the technical definition of iman, is not just theoretical knowledge. And that's why in the Quran, in almost a hundred verses, Allah says, they, are, they go hand in hand. Can you quote me any verse where Allah says, and then just stops there? There's some that says, but sabaru is a type of amal. The whole Quran, why? Because Allah is indicating there is no such thing as Iman without Amal. So, in the Qabr, the ilm that will benefit you is the ilm that you acted upon, i.e., the Iman that was in your heart. You lived your lifestyle. Ma dinuk, dini al Islam, because I lived it. 
Man rabbuk rabbi Allah because I worshipped him and him alone. See, this is the knowledge that will be over there. And that's why with the munafiq, what is the hadith that we talked about? Were you here last week? Yeah, so we did this last week. That in the munafiq, when Munkar and Nakir say, what do you say about this man? What does the munafiq say? I don't know. I heard the people say something, so I said it. This is the knowledge of the brain, not the knowledge of the heart. I heard the people say something. Means, if this exam were to take place in this dunya, the munafiq would pass it. I cheated. That's what he's basically saying. I know the answer because I cheated. He's saying this literally in the qabr. The people said it. I know the answer. But in the qabr, what is he going to say? I heard the people say something, but now, ah, ah, la adri means I didn't live in accordance with that lifestyle, right? So the iman that will benefit on that action, on that uh, imtihan, will be the iman that is acted upon and not just theoretically. لا يزال الخير حيا لا يزال إن في الدنيا سلاما وظلال أخبر الأيام أنها في وصال قم بنا وانظر لآيات الجمال قم بنا وانظر لآيات الجمال